Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckettes join me shortly. Our topics this week, clearing the path for bicycles. Should the path to a new baseball stadium lead downtown? And a hometown columnist urges Mike Pompeo to come home to Kansas, plus roast and toast. But we're going to start with our interview segment and talk with someone who was also a hometown columnist for a lot of years. Yale Abuhaka was part of the Kansas City Star's editorial board, writing columns and editorials frequently focusing on local government issues. And Yale spent quite a few Thursdays on the ruckus set, adding expertise to our discussions. After leaving the Star, Yale and his wife Becky joined the Peace Corps and served two years in the southwest African country of Namibia. The couple returned home a few weeks ago. I thought it would be fun to visit with him about his adventures. So, Yale Abahaka, welcome back to Ruckus. Glad to be back here, Mike. Good to see you. What, uh, I've thought about this a lot. What prompted you to join the Peace Corps? Is this something that as a young man you thought would be exciting and finally decided to take part in, or was it just a new idea? No, almost. It was as a young woman, my wife Becky oh. wanted to be in the Peace Corps, and then life got involved, children got involved, careers got involved. But after we were uh, both retired, it's like, well, let's go do this. And I definitely want to go to Africa. And we did. So it was, it's all her fault. A any more Peace Corps activity in your future? Um, really doing stuff like this. One of the goals of the Peace Corps is to talk to Americans about where you served, uh, the good and bad things about going on uh, in what being a Peace Corps member is, and basically you know, you can do stuff later. Um, there are people in their 60s, even 70s, who do Peace Corps missions. Um, so I, I can't say no, because my wife might wake up tomorrow and want to do another one. <laughs> uh, you know, when I read you were going off to Namibia, I think all I knew was it's in Africa. Right. I now know it's Southwest Africa. Yeah. Uh, what can you tell us quickly about Namibia? Um, it is twice the size of California, with only two and a half million people. So very sparse. Um, a poorer country uh, with a wide uh, inequality in wages and incomes. Um, Becky and I taught in a small small village. We had separate schools. Um, uh, the learners are, which we call the uh, students over there, learners are mostly come from poorer families, but um, they're so sweet. I mean, the one thing, if I get nothing across today, it is that how much I miss, and Becky and I both miss, the children over there, which is what we did. We taught English, art, uh, information, communication. So, Communications problem? Uh, no, well, the great thing is English is the official language of Namibia, so they want the learners there to learn English. But they already know one, two, or three tribal languages, so which is a heck of a lot more than uh, Becky and I knew. Uh, but, you know, school's not that important to them. Most of them are going to be laborers in a country where unemployment is 30 or 40 percent. So they come to school for just to kind of have fun. And that was one thing that type A personality like me <laughs> had, to deal, had to learn to deal with. Taught in the tenth the first year, um, but in the second year was much better. Um, we were able to uh, equip our libraries with books that people had sought 
had uh, sent us from uh, Missouri. So the children there really learned to kind of, I'm going to say appreciate, but at least they learned to know that we were there to be with them and to teach them but have some fun with them. So that was the best part of being a volunteer. So what now for Yale Abahaka? Back to journalism perhaps? Um, I don't think so because that sounds like work. <laughs> I actually did, I, I had a lot of fun writing a Facebook post and doing some uh, tweets there to tr again try to inform Americans about Namibia. And one thing about journalism is it is hard to actually know what's going on. I mean, you have to interview people. You do have to talk to people. And I, I don't mind doing maybe like a Facebook post where I just give an opinion based on 30 some odd years of you know, being an opinion writer. But if you're really gonna do something local especially, you need to talk to people. And that, again, as I said, sounds like work. Right now I want to garden. I want to be with our dogs. I want to enjoy time with our kids. So, so we'll see. I, I really don't know yet. Well, the editorial board of the Star's composition has changed a great deal since you mm -hmm. left. I'm sure you've taken a look at it. Any mm -hmm. thoughts? Um, I'm glad they have one. <laughs> I mean, seriously, in this time of... You're glad to have I, a thought? or I, No, I'm glad they board. have a, a, a surviving newspaper here. I'm, I'm very glad that the editorial page is, is uh, strong and thriving, uh, giving you know, all kinds of different views. I mean, that was the one thing when I started in 1984. I was a young editorial writer. I left in 2016 as an older guy. But during that entire time, being able to have um, thoughts and share them with the community were probably the best part of being an editorial writer. And, you know, frankly, having it in the newspaper was really important. And unfortunately, because so few people take the newspaper these days, although they do read online, but there was such a power of the print. And I'm afraid we've gotten away from that. Obviously, there are still opinion rights online, all that kind of stuff, which is good. But that is, to me, that was just a, a different kind of age, maybe a little bit different age of where people um, you know, could have that paper and pay attention to it, opinion, editorials, whatever. Great to have you back. Thanks very much for coming you, in. My regards to Becky. Thanks a lot, Mike. All right. That is well-known area journalist Yale Abahaka. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus. Patrick Tui is Director of Municipal Policy at the Show Me Institute, a free market think tank. Michelle Watley is founder of the Grio Group, a strategic communications consulting firm. Attorney Jim Heater is the former CEO of the Kansas City Chamber of Commerce. And litigator extraordinaire Steve Marakian is with the firm of Warsh, Hobbs and Marakian. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for coming in. Some interesting items to talk about this evening. This is not the first time we have discussed the idea of special bike paths on Kansas City streets, streets designated for cyclists. But it never hurts to recycle. <laughs> I knew you'd like that. Still that. sitting on the shelf is Kansas City's master bike plan, a plan some critics say would cost about $400 million. News accounts suggest there is anything but unanimity on the idea of bike lanes. Supporters say the lanes promote exercise and safety, a cleaner environment, and help cities lower the cost of street maintenance and reconstruction. Critics, however, say bike lanes slow traffic, take parking spaces, and get only minimal use. City Council seems unsure of what to do. Implement the bike plan? Change the plan? Forget the plan? Let cyclists fend for themselves. So, Patrick, what advice can you offer the city council? Well, independent of this particular issue, I think what council members need to look at is what's the data available to them? Uh, how do you measure success? 
And is there demand for any kind of change? In this particular case, unfortunately, I think Bike Walk has not made their case. The numbers they report, the number of lives saved or jobs created are, are, are absolute garbage. And in fact, aren't even supported by their own research. And nationwide, cycling is going down. Perhaps if Kansas City had solved all its other problems and was flush with cash, this might be a good idea. But Kansas City has immediate needs today, uh, paramount, existential needs that it needs to address. Bike lanes are, are nowhere near the top. I think those people who support the idea of bike lanes say this $400 million figure is exaggerated and totally ridiculous. Well, it may be. I mean, uh, anybody who tries to predict what uh, local governments are going to well, spend on something. where does it come from? Who predicts it? Uh, I think they looked at 30 years of expenditures and what it would take to put in lines uh, to paint, uh, you know, to paint uh, green strips on the street. But but ultimately, uh, this is nowhere near a priority for Kansas City. And, and perhaps if cycling had been going up in Kansas City and the city said, we want to meet demand, that would be one thing. But that's not what's happening in Kansas City. These people want to spend this money on spec basically saying build it and then people will cycle and that's just not a good use of money. Michelle, I don't think I saw you cycling into the studio today. Do uh, you I have any not. thoughts about this? <laughs> I actually live on Armour where they um, put in some of the first bike lanes and I found the implementation of the bike lane system uh, was not at all seamless and very taxing on the neighborhood. Um, I have a guy in my building who has used bicycling as his main mode of transportation for many years and he continues to ride on the sidewalk to this day, although there are bike lanes in front of our building. And so I think that transportation is an important issue. It should be a priority. I think in Kansas City, there are not very reliable sources of transportation for Kansas Cityans, and bicycling could be one of those. Um, but at the price tag that we're talking about and the way it was implemented on Armour, I think that needs to definitely be revisited before we move forward. With Jim, anything. do you think the people who use bicycles do it for recreation, for exercise, or for transportation? I think in Kansas City, uh, Mike, gets. Uh, Cyclists do it mostly for recreation. Some people do it for transportation. It was interesting, actually, although I didn't cycle to the, the studio today, um, I did count four different cyclists on the sidewalk mm -hmm. as I came here. And I'm not sure what kind of demand that represents, if any. Um, they look like recreational cyclists, but they could have been cycling to work. I too. wonder why they weren't on the streets. Well, because there was construction on the streets, there's parking on the streets, and there's traffic on the streets. Um, I do think that bicycling lanes have an important place to a role to play in an overall transportation plan, but I think there are a lot of other priorities for the city right now, and I think you do have to assess demand, and you have to assess safety, and you have to assess financial considerations, and I'm not sure where the city council will come out on that. Steve, from time to time I find myself driving on streets that have bicycle lanes, and I never see any bicyclists. What's your experience? Well, you know, I was thinking as I drove in today from, from downtown to the studio, I wish I had my bike so I could have driven, but there's no bike lanes, and so I couldn't do it. And then, and then I got on the way in here, I couldn't get here as early as I wanted to because I was behind the streetcar to nowhere that we've built, okay, which takes up an entire lane. I work downtown. I can tell you I have not seen a bicyclist downtown, recreational or otherwise, in years. Now, there may be a few. The idea that we would spend, the only place I see cyclists, by the way, is in suburbs. Next uh, place like that for recreation, and then we have bike lanes, and the the ridiculous cyclists refuse to use them. Okay, and they want to ride in the middle of the street. Boulder, Colorado, you have more bikes than cars, I think, and it's a continual war between the cyclists who don't want cars 
it's a continual problem. If we were to put bike lanes in Kansas City, again, without studying it, as Patrick has mentioned, we don't have the need, we don't want to spend the money, it would be a huge traffic congestion problem, it solves nothing, okay? We are not Holland. Let's remember, we're not Holland. No matter how much you want us to be, we don't need bike well, lanes in, in Kansas City. In anticipation of the negative reaction to what Patrick has said and what you have said, uh, next week our guest for the interview segment will be Eric Rogers, Executive Director of Bike Walk KC. Ask him if he rode, if he rode his bike to the studio. All right. I will ask him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. As soon as the speculation began that David Glass was selling the Kansas City Royals to John Sherman, the talk about a downtown baseball stadium began. The idea is nothing new. It's been discussed for years. Supporters think a downtown stadium would increase economic development, improve attendance at the games, enhance nearby attractions, 18th and Vine, for example, and promote tourism. Others worry about the cost. Who would pay? Would taxpayers be on the hook? What about traffic issues? And hasn't downtown already gotten more than its share of government spending and public attention? Obviously, views about moving the Royals downtown are not unanimous. What about your view, Michelle? Uh, I'm going to lean on what Pat just mentioned and uplift the fact that we have a number of priorities going on in the city right now that we need to be spending money on and paying attention to. And I don't know that a new baseball stadium in downtown should be one of them. Outside of the fact that it's expensive, um, downtown has benefited from millions of dollars in incentives and is currently on the boom. Uh, we couldn't get taxpayers to approve a $30 million tax for pre-K. You know, education is something that's very important. So I'm not really understanding the need for a baseball uh, stadium downtown, and that is not something I would vote for. Well, Jim, you know what the civic leadership of Kansas City thinks. You're part of the civic leadership of Kansas City, so what does the civic leadership think about a downtown baseball stadium? Uh, far be it for me to, <laughs> to read the mind of the civic leadership of Kansas City, but I, I suspect that uh, it would be of two minds, actually. There would be plenty of people who know that uh, what downtown baseball parks have done for a lot of other cities around the country. It would be very interested in seeing a downtown baseball stadium in Kansas City. On the other hand, there are plenty of civic leaders who would be interested in other priorities for the city and who realize the enormous price tag that would accompany a downtown baseball stadium. Particularly when you start to think that the Kansas City Chiefs would want probably a similar amount for either renovation or even a new yeah. arrowhead. One of the things that intrigues me, though, is the possibility of a bi-state tax, which the voters in Jackson County... So we can have a bi-stadium. We can have a bi-stadium. <laughs> Indeed, we could, just like we did Union Station yeah. uh, a number of years ago. I think that's an intriguing proposal, and probably the only way, if, if, if the community wanted to pursue this, that's probably the only way it would get financed. Do you think Kansas would jump into a bi-state proposal for a downtown Kansas City, Missouri baseball stadium? Oh, sure. They're always on board with the bi-state tax idea, okay? It's well, not going to Johnson happen. County no, they approved not, the other they one. Would, yeah. I'm not saying it couldn't be done. I'm simply saying yeah. they won't support it. It would take years of litigation or, 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 or working and litigation. And again, I go back to echoing what Patrick said earlier, okay? This idea, these things need to be studied. There are pros and cons. There are all kinds of studies out there that say downtown stadiums are not a benefit to the community. There are some that say they are. There's no answer to this thing. Some have worked, some haven't. We have right now a jewel. And, and people who, who, who go to Arrowhead Stadium and the complex out there, Kaufman and Arrowhead, from out of town, my friends who come from out of town, 
look at these things and say, God, that is, that's amazing, that's beautiful. They're so easy to get to. You get in your car, you drive out on the various highways. <laughs> they, they may not be with the road they, construction they, they, well, going on. Okay, but, but they're, they're easy, the parking is easy. Yeah. You try to put a downtown stadium here and you're gonna have traffic congestion and people complaining about traffic congestion, and sure, well, there'll be some foot traffic and there'll be some benefit to restaurants and so forth, but the fact of the matter is, as Jim said, you know, the owners aren't gonna pay for it. The taxpayers of Jackson County and Kansas City are gonna pay for this, and they're going to build a downtown stadium for a baseball team, and then what do we do with the complex, the Arrowhead and Kaufman complex? We have really, really good stadiums, which were updated some years ago, and they are absolutely magnificent stadiums, and we should continue to make sure they stay at the top of the list and keep them where they are. Any chance, Patrick, that the ownership of the Royals, Mr. Sherman, uh resident of Kansas City, a longtime supporter of sports, might pay for it himself. Would that be okay? It's happening more and more across the country. Stan Kroenke, who took the Rams to St. Louis, is spending almost $2 billion of his own money to build a $5 billion entertainment complex in Los Angeles for the Rams that the taxpayers are paying none of. And, and let me uh, uh, disagree a little bit with Mike here. There are no studies that say that That's stadiums... That's Jim over there. Oh, no, no, uh, Merakian. Oh, uh, Steve, Steve, forgive yeah. me. Uh, there are no studies that say that uh, uh, stadiums drive economic development. They may within a particular area, but what you're doing is you're just transferring that growth from Truman Sports Complex to downtown. The city will see no growth. And, you know, Joe Reardon was on KCMO Radio the other day applauding the the border war true, saying we ought not spend money moving companies from one side of the city to the other. Well, what is a downtown stadium but using subsidies to move a company from one side of the city to the other? It's an absolutely bad idea. But my fear is that all the people who love spending poor people's tax dollars on, on wealthy developers uh, won't be able to say no. Oh, Ralph, um, Jim, uh, <laughs> a downtown baseball stadium, I've been told, would spur development on the east side of Kansas City and be a big help to 18th and Vine. Well, a lot of people would uh, would conclude that, particularly, of course, there are several different would locations. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I tend to. I, if, if you look at what's happened with other cities, starting with Baltimore way back in the 70s, the early 70s, and, and including San Francisco much more recently, it has spurred development in those parts of the city where there has been, theretofore, no development sorry, whatsoever. Do you want Kansas City to be more like Baltimore? Is <laughs> yeah. that what you're advocating? <laughs> do you want Kansas City to be more like Baltimore? Is I, that what you're advocating? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that, Patrick, well, but, but what but I would say is... But there's an important lesson in Baltimore. There are a lot of good lessons to, to well, be learned about we'll, San we'll Francisco. Get those, we'll get those lessons some other time, because now we're going to move on. There has been the sighting of a rare species on the editorial pages of the Kansas City Star. It's an authentic local Republican columnist who actually works at the Star and more surprisingly shows conservative tendencies. In a recent column, Michael Ryan makes the case that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo should leave the Trump administration and run to succeed Kansas Senator Pat Roberts in next year's election. Ryan's fear is without Pompeo in the race, the Kansas GOP might nominate Chris Kobach and actually lose a Senate seat in Kansas for the first time since 1932. Pompeo is a native Kansan who represented the state's fourth congressional district before being tapped by Trump to be CIA director and then Secretary mm -hmm. of State. So, Steve Marakian or Jim or whatever your name is, is Mike Pompeo the only Republican candidate who can assure Republicans a win, if indeed he can, in the 2020 Senate election? 
I would not say he's the only one who can assure them a win. I can tell you there's one who will assure them a loss, and, and that's Mr. Kobach. And I don't say that with any animus to him, but I think he demonstrated last time the Johnson Countyans hate John, uh, Chris Kobach so much, and he's gotten so much bad press from certain lawsuits and so forth, that without Johnson County, he doesn't win, and he's not going to win Johnson County. So, that, so he's, he's a non-starter. In my view, Pompeo, I would love to see him run in Kansas. I like him as Secretary of State. I think he's done a great job. But I think Secretary of State's come and go. And with, with the President, you know, his foreign policy is wherever it is anyway on whatever day he, you know, he chooses. If Pompeo ran, I believe the Democrats would probably just throw in the towel. He, nobody is going to beat Pompeo. My concern is, I, first of all, I don't think he's going to do it. Secondly, I'm concerned, not concerned, but there, there's a possibility that within a day or two, the President might just make Pompeo, put Pompeo in to, to, to assume the role that John Bolton had. It's been done in the past with Henry Kissinger and others, and that would almost assure that he's not leaving that position. I would love to see Pompeo run. There may be others who can run and win, but I, I'm very concerned that they're not going to hold this seat. Well, would you discount Roger Marshall, who is the congressman from the 1st District, which is a huge district, and others from that district who have served the United States no, and Congress no, I, have gone I, I on to I certainly would not. I, I, there, are, there, are, there are good people out there. I can't name all of them, and I don't know all of them. I, and someone like Marshall uh, may, may do a fine job and may win. I'm not saying, I mean, Kansas is still clearly a heavily Republican state. But this is a really difficult election for Republicans in the sense that if they lose three Senate seats, okay, the game's over. They cannot afford to lose a state like Kansas. Jim, is Pompeo the kind of candidate a Democrat like yourself might? I know you don't live in Kansas, but would you possibly support somebody like that? For this I think state? the answer is is no. Even though, mm -hmm. uh, even though, um, even though he's a Harvard law school, even though he's a Harvard law school graduate, graduate, and, graduate, and we've had conversations in Washington when I was the CEO of the Greater Kansas State Chamber of Commerce, and I always wondered how um, how a guy with his educational background, including the fact that he's a West Pointer, could he and I, he and I could disagree so much on on so many issues. It's because so, you're wrong. That's all I <laughs> so I know I, I don't think Democrats would support Mike Pompeo. I do agree with Steve that he would be the hands-down favorite to win the Republican nomination and to win the Senate seat if he chooses to run. Kind of what's interesting, though, is that if he did decide to run now, there are a number of very substantial Republicans, including Representative Roger Marshall, who are in this race already. So it would be a very dislocating uh, kind of event for Kansas Republicans if Mike Pompeo did decide to run. Michelle, might it be argued that uh, Pompeo is more valuable to Kansas and the United States as Secretary of State rather than serving the state as a U.S. Senator? I think that could be argued. His connection to and the relationship that he's developed with um, President Trump, I mean, makes, is what gives him value both to the state and to the nation. So it'd be, I agree with, you know, the other panelists that if he were to come in and run for Senate, it would be kind of a, a no-brainer for uh, any other candidate to kind of step out and let him have at it. Um, and we've seen the influence of Trump in other races. If we look at what just happened in North Carolina, he was able to, through the endorsement, um, help push that candidate through. He recently endorsed Mike Parsons uh, in his gubernatorial run. So I think the influence that Trump brings um, and his connection to Trump makes him valuable. All right, now it is time for Roast and Toast where the Ruckheads have 30 seconds each to analyze, theorize, or jeopardize. And let's start with Michelle. 
I want to give a toast to Councilwoman Melissa Robinson for recently passing a resolution through the City Council that names racism as a public health crisis. It's a resolution that was recently passed and has been passed in other municipalities and what it does is it essentially names racism as a public health crisis so that it gives leverage to um, governing bodies to deal with the systemic issues that lead to a disproportionate life expectancies and health issues that people of color face in the city. Steve. What a week for the president. Tuesday, he carried two new members of the House to victory on his back. Wednesday, he fired John Bolton, the neocon progressive who never saw a war he didn't like. Yesterday, the Supreme Court upheld Trump's first available country asylum policy by a 7-2 margin. And today, the stock market may reach an all-time high. This is why the Supreme Court and capitalism matter. What's good for Mr. MAGA is good for the USA. Mr. Tuohy. A toast to Lead to Read, a volunteer reading mentorship program that is beginning its ninth year of operation in Kansas City with 1,100 volunteers in 50 classrooms across 16 elementary schools. For 30 minutes over one lunch hour a week, reading mentors and students explore the world by reading books provided by the students' teachers. Only half of Kansas City students are proficient at reading by third grade. Mm -hmm. Improving this requires the time and attention of all Kansas Cityans. Lead to Read leverages exactly that resource to the betterment of all. Jim? Mike, I'd like to toast the Kansas City Symphony and its music director, Michael Stern, for announcing uh, just this week that Michael Stern uh, has signed a, a, a new three-year contract with the Kansas City Symphony. He will be the music director through 2023. Uh, in the interim, uh, he will uh, help um, the Kansas City Symphony Board choose his successor, and at the end of 2023, he will become the music director laureate of the Kansas City Symphony. A, a lot of people deserve a lot of credit for the great success of the Kansas City Symphony in the last 15 years. No one deserves more credit than Michael Stern. It's great to know that he'll be here in, um, in Kansas City through 2023. And finally, is it possible these two men, Steve Marakian and Senator Angus King of Maine, are actually twin brothers, separated at birth. They look alike. Both are attorneys, politically astute and outspoken. Now, there is at least one major difference. Because of his last name, Angus can legitimately say he is a king. Steve just acts like he is. <laughs> and that's Ruckus for this week. We are back next Thursday at 7. Now for the Ruckheads and the crew, I'm Mike Shannon saying thanks very much for watching and good night.